Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. And today we are going to talk about stable points. Uh, I'm joined by Miles Snyder of Multicoin and Asib Qureshi of Metastable. Uh, guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me on. Why don't we start with some brief introductions uh, of, of what you guys do and how you fell down the rabbit hole of, of stable coins. Yeah, so I can start. Um, I do research at Multicoin Capital. I found out about stablecoins pretty soon after I got into crypto. I, I kind of fell down the crypto rabbit hole in 2014 while I was studying abroad in Argentina. And then, you know, after really good on going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, I began to be interested in, in like price stable cryptocurrencies really as a result of, of what I saw going on in Argentina, where there were a lot of people there that really wanted to buy dollars. So there was, uh, like you could see the appeal of a sort of decentralized, non-government controlled currency like Bitcoin, but, um, the price volatility made it such that it wasn't really a great hedge against inflation of the Argentine peso. And people there just bought dollars on the black market. So that really got me thinking about like, okay, if you could combine the, um, you know, the properties of Bitcoin with the price stability of a fiat currency like the dollar, that gets you a lot of interesting stuff that could be really uh, useful to a lot of people. So I, uh, yeah, I started paying attention to some of the earlier stablecoin projects in 2014, which were like BitShares, uh, NewBits, which was kind of a failed project, and then watched Maker come around after... Um, after Ethereum debuted and then throughout 2017, we kind of saw the stablecoin explosion. Um, and now there's like, you know, 20 plus stablecoin projects. Um, so I've still try to keep tabs on all of them. Cool. Let's see. It sounds like Miles was sort of driven to stablecoins out of the, the pure utility of it. I think I probably came to stablecoins from another direction, which is more from the side of the, the fascination with how to build something that could actually have the property of, of being price stable. So I so I got into crypto relatively late. So I think you know I first heard of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies around 2014, 2015. Well, actually, quite a bit before that, but only really started becoming aware of all the stuff that was going on in the blockchain space around then. And it was really you know about a year and a half ago that I decided to dive in like full time. And uh, it was it was I think really around like August, September last year that I started getting really interested in the different mechanics that teams were using to stabilize cryptocurrencies. And actually, I think it was Preston Burns' blog. That got me most interested because I don't know if, if um, any folks in your audience are familiar with Preston Byrne, but he's he's this he's this lawyer who is very very cynical, I guess is the best way to put it, about everything stablecoin related. And so I, I he has very entertaining blog posts. I don't agree with everything that he says, and I think I probably disagree with a lot of the stuff that he he writes about stablecoins. He the, the, just the vehemence with which he's declared that stablecoins were basically impossible to build uh, made me think like, is that Really true. I bet there's probably some way to do it. That really got me going farther and farther down the stablecoin rabbit hole. And that was probably around late last year, which when a lot of the activity was really ramping up of, you know, true USD, DAI uh, first deciding that they were going to launch and a lot of other, you know, base coin, which is now called basis uh, and a bunch of the other projects that are now, you know, at the forefront of the space. Before we get into is it possible and the different approaches, say more a little bit about what, what the promise is, like, what, what's the potential? How do things change if this is if this is figured out? So the original promise of Bitcoin. So depending on who you ask, you know, Bitcoin is a, a payment system. It's a form of digital gold. It's a, a store of value. 
I, there are a lot of narratives that get bandied around about what uh, cryptocurrency can can be is in, in different communities and in different places in the world. But a lot of it is really uh, so. First of all, a lot of the usage of cryptocurrencies are obviously speculative, and most people are pretty well aware of that at this point. But not only are are they speculative in their current usage, but the the whole idea of cryptocurrencies being stores of value is also speculative. Um, they're not right now stores of value. The reason why people invest so excitedly into Bitcoin and many of these other currencies is in the hope that eventually they might become a store of value. But right now, they're they're very clearly not. So if something is to serve as a store of value, it needs to be much less volatile than Bitcoin. So if you imagine a if you imagine an economy that actually ran on one of these digital currencies. Bitcoin has far too much volatility. You wouldn't be able to pay wages in it because the the value of those wages would be changing on a weekly basis and you know crashing by seventy five percent over over six months. Like that's that's clearly untenable. As you can see in a place like you know Venezuela or Turkey or Iran, the, you know that kind of price instability makes it very difficult for an economy to congeal around it. And so there are a lot of different use cases like lending. You know if you have loans where the collateral is fluctuating in, in price, things like prediction markets, uh, all sorts of uh, situations where capital is going to be locked up for a long period of time, you need some kind of price stability. And right now, cryptocurrencies as speculative investments can't really serve that role. And that got a lot of people, and this is an old idea, it's been swirling around for a long time, um, of how can you build a cryptocurrency that's designed to do nothing else but be stable, right? And there's there's a, there's a sort of, um, there's a sense in which that's kind of the antithesis of what a lot of crypto seems to be about. Because a lot of what crypto is about is speculation. And you can't, by definition, if something is price stable, you cannot speculate on it. So that's one of the reasons why I think it's taken a very long time for there to be all that much vigor and experimentation around stable coins is that as the crypto market has grown, we've realized just how, just how strong the demand is for something that is more price stable than these other cryptocurrencies. But enough of the world has come on to the idea that, oh, crypto might be a thing. There might be digital economies where we use some censorship-resistant store of value. That now these things are getting explored with more and more, more and more speed, and more and more resources are being thrown at them. Yeah, so I think something that's kind of interesting that you touched on. Um, I've seen different approaches for people who say like, why are stablecoins useful, or why are they valuable, or why should we be exploring them? And one of them is just sort of what I mentioned earlier around countries like Argentina or Venezuela. You have demand for dollars in a lot of other countries, or at least demand for, um, you know, superior forms of fiat. And the idea is that, you know, could we help people get their hands on um, something that maintains value like fiat currency and even better is actually pegged to a fiat currency, but is borderless, permissionless and digital. Um, and that's kind of where stable coins come in. So that's kind of one use case. And then the other side of the equation is for people who kind of buy into the web 3.0 vision and believe that, um, decentralized applications will, will be widely used and useful. Um, as you mentioned, you kind of need a price stable cryptocurrency to, um, to conduct a lot of those use cases, especially in the case where you're, um, where you're locking up funds. But I think even more importantly, you just have to remember that for a lot of people to, um, want to use these things, they're going to have to mirror the experiences of, um, like centralized alternatives. And one of those is that for the ability to people, for people to pay with a unit of account that they're familiar with, which is the dollar. So if you think about like something like a prediction market, you know, placing bets denominated in ether isn't really, um, realistic because of the price fluctuations of ether. And also if you're trying to get users onboarded who aren't crypto native, they're going to feel a lot more comfortable spending something that is pegged to a dollar because they're just going to feel like they're spending digital dollars. Yeah. I'm curious, what do you guys say to the sort of the, the 
you know, the critique some Bitcoiners have this, which is stable coins don't have sort of the, you know, soundness or fixed supply of Bitcoin, but they also don't have the sort of, you know, government backing of, of fiat. So they're sort of stuck in a, between a rock and a hard place in terms of like, it'll never match sort of the stability of the, of the USD. And so like, why sort of peg to the USD when you can just have the USD? And if you're looking for something that's, you know, sound, has fixed money supply, you just go with, go with Bitcoin. I mean, so I think one response to that is that it depends on the stablecoin model that you're using. But, you know, if you take the sound money of the future, whatever, you know, whatever wins the sound money race, whether that's um, Bitcoin or, you know, some people think it might be Ether, and then you use that to back um, the stablecoins to provide the collateral, then you're essentially creating a decentralized crypto native version of like a gold standard um, in a way. So, the, I mean, the first I, I would... Uh... I think it's absolutely right that it depends on what particular kind of design stablecoin you're talking about to, to levy those criticisms. But in general, I would say, you know, the answer I'd give to that is, you know, first of all, a stablecoin is not trying to be sound money. It's trying to be a drop-in replacement for, for basically something that is relatively price stable by which we usually denote the US dollar, maybe gold, but usually the US dollar, right? And the reality, why do we want a stablecoin? Um, the obvious answer is that there's enormous demand for it. So, the, I mean, the first and foremost, quote unquote killer app for stable coins is trading. Trading is much, much more effective when you have a stable coin to fiat pair because that stable coin is borderless. It's censorship resistant. It can be, it can be native to a, a crypto network, which the US dollar, you know, sort of native fiat cannot. The other obvious thing is that there's tons of demand for the US dollar actually around the world. Uh, many people want to, to get hold of fiat and to transact in fiat digitally, uh, but they can't because their governments impose currency controls, or it's just very difficult because of the lack of financial infrastructure for there to have fluid markets in and out of their local currency. The, you know, the value there, I think, is very obvious. People want it. That's why stablecoins exist. That's why you know Tether's market cap is at 2.2 billion, and why it's one of the you know I, I think now one of the top 10 cryptocurrencies is because people obviously want this. Stablecoins are not trying to be, as far as as far as anyone I know who's talked about stablecoins, they're not trying to be sound money. They're not trying to be a replacement for Bitcoin. Bitcoin has a completely separate ethos and purpose to what stablecoins are trying to be. Maybe it's a good segue into the different types of design of, of, of stablecoins. Well, actually, before we get into there, so who is stablecoin? Who are stablecoins trying to compete with, and for what like elements of money as it relates to like store value, medium exchange, and, and unit of count? So I think in you you could argue perhaps in the limit that stablecoins will compete with fiat currencies, right? So if you look at uh, one of the more ambitious projects in the space, especially non-collateralized stablecoins like like Basis, those coins are trying to say, look, you know, central banks, uh, you know, they they're great for now. You know, the U.S. dollar happens to be the reserve currency of the world, but there's no guarantee that it will be so forever. And every government fundamentally has some mixed incentives to potentially sometimes devalue the currency in favor of funding its own operations. And, you know, this is, this, this is a pattern that you see in many different countries around the world and happens as a government weakens or its position in the world weakens. And so the argument would be that, well, if you have this, you know, algorithmic stable coin that is uh, managed by a smart contract, there are no humans in the loop, there are no bad incentives that can anywhere force the coin to go awry for some momentary reason, then potentially that could create a, a world scale store of value reserve currency that could be used borderlessly, it could be used anywhere. And ultimately, it would result in a transfer of power from governments to people, such that governments would no longer have a complete monopoly or control 
over the financial means or the financial abilities of their of their citizens to transact in a stable currency. Um, that would be a, a the, the most sort of you know far out outlandish you know 2050 kind of futuristic claim about what stable coins could be. Now in the current present, right? What are stable coins actually competing against? The reality is that stable coins are right now competing against the you know, the, the, the de facto reserve currencies of crypto trading, which are Bitcoin and Ether, right? So if you have a stable coin like Tether or like TrueUSD or like uh, DAI, then that stable coin effectively can stand in as the, the opposite side of a trade. So if you're trading, you know, Bitcoin to Tether and then trading Tether to, you know, some other coin, let's say Augur, that, uh, that market is going to be, uh, the, the, it's going to result in a lot more consolidation of liquidity uh, as opposed to having Bitcoin to Ether and then Ether to Rep and then, you know, whatever, you know, Ether Classic to Ether and blah, 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 blah. That Having a stablecoin sitting at the center is something that a lot of traders really want. And for better or for worse, stablecoins right now are, you know, this sort of regulatory, unclear what the hell they are or how they work or where exactly they fit in the world. And because of that, exchanges tend to use them as the reserve currencies for trading pairs. Maybe let's get into a little bit about how they work and what are the different approaches so far. Sure. Yeah. I mean, interestingly enough, Haseeb and I kind of simultaneously, as far as I know, were the first people to identify like the three main categories of stable coins, which are fiat collateralized, crypto collateralized, and non-collateralized. And that last category, non-collateralized, is sometimes also called senior odd shares or algorithmic central bank. And since since uh, we both wrote those articles, I have seen some projects that are taking slightly different approaches or some sort of um, hybrid approach of those. But in general, I think those are, are pretty good categories. And, um, you know, maybe I can tackle the first two and then you can go into senior ed shares. But fiat collateralized is pretty simple. That's what Tether is. It's where some central company holds dollars in a bank account and they issue tokens that represent those dollars and represent at least supposedly a claim on those dollars. Um, and that is, um, it's a, it's a completely centralized approach and, uh, it's basically just one to one backing with, with something that's held in a bank account by a company. That obviously entails a lot of counterparty risk and requires that you, um, trust that the company is not operating fractional reserve, um, is actually going to redeem the tokens for collateral, uh, things like that. And fractional reserve to the audience may not. Yeah, basically. You're trusting that the um, company actually has as many dollars in their bank account as they've issued tokens representing those dollars. And for Tether, nobody knows? For Tether, nobody knows. Um, and it's kind of interesting because this this has been the most successful stablecoin model so far. Tether has a mar- market cap of, of $2, two billion plus. Despite the fact that it, there's a lot of controversy surrounding the project and the company, there's no real proof of auditing or anything like that. But, they, you know... As a result, we've seen some companies like TrueUSD step in and say, hey, we're going to do what Tether does, but we're just going to do it. We're going to be a lot more transparent about it. Um, and we're going to, you know, follow the, the, the law a lot more closely and hopefully, you know, get um, more people to trust us as a result. And, but so far, Tether continues to sort of be the dominant stablecoin. Um, it also had the first mover advantage. Um, but that's sort of the, the most, um, simple approach. Uh, but it's also kind of the least interesting because it is centralized. Then you move into the space of decentralized stable coins and the crypto collateralized approach is essentially saying you take some sort of crypto asset. Um, you know, usually if we're talking about something that's built on Ethereum, you take Ether and you lock it up in a smart contract 
and you lock up more collateral than um, what you're going to issue in stable coins. So say that you lock up $200 worth of Ether in a smart contract. That smart contract creates $100 worth of stable coins and gives them to the person who locked up the collateral. Now that person can go and, and spend those stable coins and each of those stable coins represents a claim on $1 worth of the collateral that's held in the, held in the smart contract. And the reason you're putting up $200 worth of collateral to get $100 worth of stable coins is because, as we all know, you know, crypto assets like Ether fluctuate a lot in value. So the idea is that by putting up more collateral than, than sort of the debt that you're taking on, um, there's a lot of room for, for that, the value of that collateral to fluctuate and the stable coin to still be, um, fully backed. And then maybe to see if you want to talk about the, the final approach, the non-collateralized approach. Yeah, totally. So, uh, so the third approach to building a cryptocurrency or sorry, a, a stable coin, a price stable cryptocurrency is, so we, we, I think at the time when I described the three different types, I called this non-collateralized. In retrospect, I actually wish I called it growth collateralized because I think that's actually a better description of how most of the non-fiat and non-crypto collateralized stable coins function is that at a high level, basically what you can think about or basically the way you can think about this category is that you're collateralizing each of the stable coins with some promise of future growth in the system. So the most common model for this is what's called seniorage shares, which was invented, I think, by Robert Sam in 2014, but it was never actually implemented until, well, actually, I don't think, I don't know if it has been implemented yet, but I think the first team that that was going to credibly implement it was this team called Basis, originally called Basecoin. Seniorage shares is it's it's a kind of wonky idea, um, and if you're if you're driving or something, it might be hard to follow. But I'll I'll try to explain it as simply as I can. So the idea in senior shares is that um, you know you're, you're trying to have a one to one backed uh, coin, and because you can control the issuance of the coin, you sort of get the right to print new money and sell it on the open market. So if we assume that there's a lot of demand for the stable coin, you can imagine there's some automatic central bank, let's say a smart contract, and that smart contract says, oh, okay, there's a lot of demand for the coin. And I can tell there's a lot of demand because the price of the coin has been pushed above $1 because you know that's just how, that's how markets work. So when the price is above $1, if I sell new stable coins that I print onto the market, which I can do because I'm the smart contract that manages the supply of stable coins, uh, I can then sell those stable coins and make extra money, which is often called the seniorage. So in, when governments print new money to fund their own operations, this is often called seniorage. So the, the stable coin contract can essentially print new money, sell it up until the price is $1 on an open market, um, and all of that extra money it can keep for itself. Now, but let's say the, the stable coin is trading too low. So if the price goes down to, let's say, 90 cents, now there's too many stable coins on the market for the given price. But the smart contract can't unissue stable coins. That would be really bad. People would not, you know, that's, that's not what you want. That would be a really terrible system. So what the stable coin contract does instead is it says, look, I know right now you guys don't think my stable coin is worth more than 90 cents. But how about this? I will sell you shares in the future growth of the system. And when later I go print new coins because, you know, you expect there to be some sine wave ups and downs to the price of the stable coin. Later, when the stable coin is worth more than a dollar, when it's back to, you know, dollar 10 cents in the future, then I'm going to print new coins and I'm going to get some seniorage. So buy some bonds or buy some shares or buy some whatever. Originally they were called shares. Um, buy some shares now. And if you buy these shares from me, I promise you in the future, when I print seniorage, I'm going to give you that seniorage. But I'll give you also a little bit of extra on top to make it worth your while to make this investment. So that idea where basically when the coin is under collateralized, I print new money and I pay out people who currently are 
shareholders. And when the stablecoin is under collateralized, meaning, or not, sorry, not under collateralized, but rather undervalued, when it's at 90 cents or so, then I will sell people shares in the future uh, seniorage that the, that the system is going to earn. So this system called seniorage shares, basically the way you can think about how this works, it kind of sounds like a, kind of sounds a little bit too good to be true, kind of sounds like a pyramid scheme or some kind of perpetual motion machine or something like that. Um, it's sort of weird. And it kind of seems like it shouldn't work. But the reason why it does work is that these, this system and systems like it work in the limit provided that eventually the system continues growing. If the system does not continue growing, then eventually the system will most likely fail, almost certainly fail. And the same thing is true. There are other models that now, uh, uh, instead of using a senior shares type model, will instead collateralize the coin by saying, look, when people transact in this coin, uh, we're going to charge them some fees. And so, you know, when you send, you know, 500 stable coins to someone, we take a 0.1% or 0.5% fee. Uh, and that fee is used to help collateralize the coin that we're going to sell shares in, in that the, the, the pool of all the fees that are collected by this, by this coin. And that's what helps collateralize the coin. So again, it's sort of collateralized by growth. So you can either collateralize with fiat, which is tether style or true USD style. Uh, you can collateralize with crypto which is MakerDAO style or um, uh, the Maker token um, or the DAI, the DAI coin, which is the actual stable coin, uh, or you can collateralize with growth, which is what Basis does, which is what I think uh, Fragments and a bunch of other systems, uh, they find some way to collateralize the system with promises of future growth. Yeah. So another way to think about the senior shares model is like the, the quantity theory of money from economics, which is just saying that price levels respond to changes in the money supply. Um, and what the senior shares model tries to do is they're saying, you know, we're going to increase the supply of money when the price is above $1 so that it goes back to $1. And if the price drops below $1, we're going to contract the money supply so that, um, you know, the price goes back to that, that original level. I would contend that this is the most sort of experimental um, and maybe even risky model that's being floated for stable coins. Because it's really this coordination game. Ultimately, the, um, you know, when you have a, a collateral, like a crypto collateralized stable coin like DAI, that is backed by the ether that's held in the smart contract. And, you know, we already know that, that the market has assigned ether, you know, a certain value and that value can fluctuate, but you still have a claim on, on $1 worth of that collateral. Whereas in the senior share model, it's not actually backed by anything other than the expectation that it should return to the $1 price level or the peg price level, whatever that may be. And that's kind of this interesting coordination game that's going to be very difficult for these for these projects to bootstrap because what you're trying to get everyone to agree on is that, you know, you're, you're trying to get them to agree not only that this thing is money, but that it has a certain value and that it really, it, it flies in the face of what we think about traditionally with markets, which is that markets assign a value to something. This is saying, we're all going to collectively agree it has this value and the um, the smart contract is going to sort of manage the money supply around that. So it's, it, it is kind of a crazy idea, but the, you know, economics game theory nerd in me is, is very fascinated by it. So, yeah. So one of the other things that's really important in, in understanding stable coins, and I would argue that this is like the Achilles heel or may end up being the Achilles heel of a lot of stable coin projects is the Oracle problem. So you briefly touched on this earlier, but the idea is that if you're going to peg to something like the dollar or any, you know, any sort of anything that exists off chain, you need some way to get information about the price of what you're pegging to and, and to get that information on chain. And, you know, anytime you have something that takes information off chain and brings it on chain, it's, it's called an Oracle. 
So with stablecoins, you need a way to get those uh, off-chain prices into the system um, in a way that is sort of decentralized, not gameable, and and hopefully incorruptible. So you know, with with something like um, like Maker, for example, you have token holders that can vote on a set of um, nodes that are allowed to provide price feeds. And collectively, those price feeds determine the, the, you know, price of, of die relative to the dollar and certain system parameters are kind of tweaked off of that. Ideally, stablecoins should be these like, you know, decentralized autonomous systems that are entirely run by code. But when you introduce the Oracle problem, you start to see that you do need some sort of human element and designing an Oracle that is incorruptible is, is something that's really, really tough. And um, there have been a few different designs that have been floated, but uh, I still think a lot of them are, um, you know, a lot of the projects are still trying to figure out how to do this in the best way possible. Hasib, do you have any thoughts about about the Oracle problem or designs there? Yeah. Um, so I actually I actually take the total opposite tack on the Oracle problem. The Oracle problem feels to me like one of those things that people love to talk about, but in reality, it's almost never the most pressing problem for any of these stable coins. Like, honestly, if you could get a version of, of die or basis or anything working where there was just one trusted provider of the price feed, like that would in and of itself be amazing. And we, and we basically know the answer of how you can solve the Oracle problem, right? Either you can get a coalition of uh, trusted nodes who are voted on and you take the median of, of their, of their price numbers or something and you have some way of voting them out if they're being malicious or alternatively you can use a shelling coin scheme along the lines of what Augur does. The, you know, there, there are a lot of different ways that you can decide to solve it. We've basically, I mean, it's been like, you know, four or five years of different people coming up with different solutions to how you implement an Oracle. And we basically know what the design space is. We just kind of, you know, you kind of have to choose one and then try to ignore the people yelling at you that you chose the wrong solution. I, I don't think that this is the most pressing problem for, for crypto at this point. I think the reality is that almost all of these systems are very centralized in some way. And usually that the, the highest centralization point is not the Oracle. Usually the highest centralization point is somewhere else. So like, for example, in DAI, one of the biggest centralization points is the, the, the global settlement, which can be essentially uh, triggered by the DAI team. Like there, there are a lot of the sort of, you know, kill switches and sort of, you know, things that are, things that are implemented for security reasons that are in practice actually a lot more centralized than the data feeds. If anything, the data feeds are probably one of the most expensive parts about maintaining the crypto system because data feed, like publishing a data feed, Onto Ethereum, at least you know, taking Ethereum as a canonical example, is massively expensive. You know, it's it's hundreds of thousands of dollars a year if you want to publish something on every single block. So this is this is sort of a thing that I think is kind of an engineering pain, but not so much of a kind of technical computer science problem. If, if that if that makes sense, like I, I think I'll be I'll be really happy if the most decent or sorry if the most centralized part of a stablecoin is the oracles. That's interesting. I, I mean, that's an interesting take. Like in the long run, if they're able to de- decentralize every other part of the project and the Oracle remains somewhat centralized, it obviously provides an attack vector because if you can, if you can compromise the Oracle, you can compromise the whole system. But I see what you're saying with regards to like, there's a lot of other parts of these uh, projects that are centralized anyway. So maybe the Oracle problem isn't the most pressing problem at this time. But I'm curious, what do you, Given the sort of two main models, the delegated proof of stake model or the shelling scheme model, do you happen to think one or the other is superior? I, I would say that my, my so I, I wouldn't say that like I've actually di- uh, dived enough into the weeds of the actual engineering troubles with each of those. But my at a high level, my sense is that 
the delegated proof of stake model is probably superior just because it's much simpler and it probably is is significantly less expensive in terms of the the on-chain costs which i think becomes becomes a real question because you know in in a you know at, at the moment it's kind of out of scope for a lot of these systems right but like you know if you imagine you're the basis team and you you know, you're, you're, uh, trying to incentivize people to participate in your, in your scheme and to make sure that they're publishing some type of decentralized price feed or whatever. Not a lot of people are going to be willing to pay, you know, $50,000 a year publishing data onto Ethereum every single day. You know, most likely you're going to need to do a lot of that, a lot of that legwork to either incentivize people or encourage them or offer some kind of rewards that come out of some pool of money that like, unclear how that pool of money is going to evolve over time like it's it's actually really really hard just the human element of the oracle problem in the sense of just getting people to do all of this annoying work that is required in implementing a decentralized oracle i I imagine in the future it'll probably be much easier as we figure out better primitives for solving this problem right now you have a bunch of different teams basically implementing their own version of some kind of decentralized oracle and that that just feels like super wrong you know it's kind of like Every single team building its own SSL stack, you know, uh, that it, it seems like something that's probably an artifact of the fact that it's so early right now. And so few of these systems have actually seen production environments uh, where they're implementing any kind of decentralized Oracle. Pretty much all of the Oracles that are operating right now in the wild are centralized. So I imagine once we see a few of these projects really get their Oracle system up and running, people will just figure out, okay, this is the cheapest, most efficient, simplest way to do it. And people will standardize around that. You know, my suspicion is that if you're going to attack a stablecoin, the easiest way to do it is not going to be to go and mess around with like the, the system of five oracles where someone's taking the median and so on. Like that's that that is almost certainly not where these systems are going to break. Yeah, um, I think I agree with you that like the the delegated model for now at least seems to be the best one, if for no other reason than the fact that I think it's the only one that we've actually seen. Tried in production. I've seen a lot of projects come forward and say we plan to use a shelling point scheme, but other than Augur, which is, is quite different because you're not, you don't really need these like constant information updates like you would in a stablecoin system. Um, I don't even know of any projects that's implemented a shelling point scheme for like a data price feed. Yeah. So do we want to talk a little bit about the, like the different projects and the different approaches that they're taking in the space? I think if we're categorizing them broadly as like into the three categories we mentioned above for the, Fiat collateralized, the two main projects are really Tether and um, TrueUSD. And then if we get into the... Which is real quick, you mentioned earlier that they're least interesting because they're centralized. Can you sort of unpack what least interesting means in, in, this, in this case? Yeah, I mean, I think that at least where I came from, as I mentioned earlier, um, when I was thinking about stablecoins living in Argentina, was that... It was the idea of combining the properties that make Bitcoin really interesting, the properties that make decentralized cryptocurrencies really interesting, which is, you know, they're, they're non-governmental, they're fully decentralized, so there's no, there's no issuing party or central point of failure or control. They're borderless, peer-to-peer, digital, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, that, those are all properties that Bitcoin has. And, uh, I further added that no counterparty risk. Um, but obviously Bitcoin has a lot of price volatility. So the idea is that if you can combine that with the relative stability of, of the stronger fiat currencies, like the dollar or the euro or something like that, you get this really interesting fusion. Now I say that things like Tether and TrueUSD are not interesting because they simply don't have the, all of those properties that I listed before. They are digital, but they are not decentralized. They do have a single point of failure. They do require that you, um, trust the issuing party, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so, uh, 
I just think that, you know, creating a fully decentralized version of that is a lot more interesting and probably can serve a lot more use cases. Yeah. So then within the crypto collateralized space, I think the most prominent project by far is, is Maker. Although I'd also lump um, BitShares, uh, BitUSD and BitCNY in that category as well. And I think those are sort of the main ones that stand right now. Um, and then finally, you have the senior shares of which, as I, as I mentioned, the, the main one is um, Basis. That's probably the most high profile project. They've raised the most money. But you also have Carbon, you've got Fragments, and then several others. And then you, you finally, you've got a few projects that have sort of done hybrid models of which I would put like Haven and uh, Reserve and some of the other ones in there. Um, and honestly, so I, I have a, a website called the Stablecoin Index that I run that's kind of a, a list of different stablecoin projects. And I have my email in there and I probably get a few emails a week with projects that are, you know, building new stablecoins. Um, and really like throughout 2017, as I mentioned, we saw this explosion of it and it's still happening. So there's a lot of different approaches that are being tried. And yet you haven't invested in any of them, have you? Uh, no. Have you multiplied? No. Why not? Like, what would you need to see in order to push you over the edge? That's a, it's a, it's a good question. I think that as much as I have an interest in stable coins, I also have a healthy sense of skepticism about them. But I, further, I think that there, you know, you, there are certain, uh, instances where you could say, stable, this project is really interesting, but maybe isn't like the best investment. Every stable coin, like, it sort of begs the obvious question for the audience of like, why would you invest in a stable coin, right? Like, why would you invest in something that's pegged to be at a dollar? Um, all of these systems have some sort of equity token component to them that is supposed to sort of divide the uh, responsibilities of the protocol between the one token that maintains stability and the other token that maybe takes on a little more risk, but has, you know, higher upside. And a lot of those are structured to be like a, a pseudo equity in the system. And so... Depending on the model, those can be more or less attractive investments. Now, I think that there's reasons, and we'll go into the reasons later, why I think that, you know, the senior shares model may have some some sort of major weaknesses to it that make us hesitant to invest. But certainly the way that it's structured, it's a very, very attractive investment, um, especially for, for the people who are able to get in early. Because as you mentioned, you're, they're collateralizing the future growth of the system. So if you own part of that equity and you believe that it's going to grow very significantly, you are essentially buying a share in that huge upside. Uh, Asif, did you, should we get into challenges or did you want to follow up to anything Miles just said? Oh, uh, no, let's go for it. Sounds right. good to me. Awesome. Do you want to get into some of the challenges, problems, black swan, scaling, sort of stuff? Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess one of the first problems we can talk about is with senior chairs, and I'd be curious for your take on this, Asif, but the um, idea, as I mentioned before, is that the senior chairs tokens uh, or stable coins aren't actually backed by anything. So you can imagine a scenario in which either an attack was um, executed on the protocol or some sort of something else that causes a crisis of confidence. And if the stablecoin dips too far below the peg, um, ultimately there's nothing preventing it from going to zero. And um, some people have sort of theorized an attack on these systems and they're calling it the Soros attack, which is named after uh, George Soros's kind of infamous attacking of the Bank of England, where investors would go out and short the stablecoin, um, you know, probably com- combined with some sort of public campaign against it in, a, in an attempt to break confidence in the system and, you know, destroy the peg, cause it to go to, to zero or to near zero, and then be able to sort of cover their short and, and make a lot of money on that trade. Do you, do you have any thoughts on, on that general attack vector? 
Uh, no, I think you're. I think you're totally correct. I mean, I think for any for any senior shares type model, a Soros attack is a, is a really big problem. Um, now, of course, being able to do a Soros style attack is predicated on having liquid market, like very very liquid markets, and of course, the ability to to short sell this coin. Now, the whole idea of a stable coin is that it's supposed to enable more financial infrastructure. So presumably, if a stablecoin is sufficiently successful, eventually you should be able to short it, you should be able to have very, very liquid markets with it. Um, and so this is a problem that in some way needs to be contended with. Ironically, though, this is it's something that people levy against senior shares a lot. It's also actually true of Bitcoin. And it's, it's true of many other cryptocurrencies. And there's a little bit, a little bit of a detour, but I just always find this interesting uh, as a discussion topic is that part of the assumptions that um, Satoshi Nakamoto makes in the Bitcoin white paper is that why you, you know, the reason why he claims that you shouldn't expect somebody to try to 51% attack the network and drive down the value of the coin is because anybody who is attacking the network would own so much of the coin that they would be acting in their own disinterest because they would lose, they would wipe out so much of their own value. That argument doesn't work if you have a sufficiently liquid market for shorting Bitcoin. If there's enough uh, Bitcoin that you could own such that you could offset the cost to you in dropping the price of Bitcoin through 51% attacking, then it actually becomes profitable for somebody who owns enough hash rate in the network to 51% attack. And so there's, in a sense, like the security of Bitcoin also depends on there not being enough liquidity and a stable enough market such that you could short enough Bitcoin to make a 51% attack profitable. The same thing sort of applies to any senior shares model where if if the markets are sufficiently big and the thing really grows to be this world scale success, uh, then it becomes a bigger and bigger target for a you know a very motivated hedge fund or a very motivated any kind of financial attacker on the scale of a Soros or potentially even smaller once there's sufficient liquidity. Now you can imagine that maybe you know in that in that future world because there's you know if there's enough coordination between people who are insiders who own shares or who own enough of the coins, um, they may be able to go out and effectively protect the coin in the market. But you know, if the if you if you recall the story of the Bank of England trying to protect its coin uh, or not its coin, uh, the pound against George Soros, it's it's a hard thing to defend against against a sufficiently motivated uh, and sufficiently financed attacker. And the attack costs much, much less than what the attacker stands to earn from mounting the attack, which is part of what makes that attack really, really scary when you get enough uh, financial growth in in the system to make it worth attacking. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point because theoretically the the protocol should be easier to attack in the early days when it's smaller because it would like it, you know there's there's just um it allows a large investor to to take out a bigger short against it, but when it's smaller, it also implies that there's less of a liquid shorting market. And as it grows, um, maybe that, that mark, the, the market to, to be able to, to short against it grows as well, but then it's going to be harder to attack. So it, I, I used to think this attack was more feasible than I think it is now. But one of the in, other interesting factors at play here is that when you're shorting a stable coin, um, as an investor, theoretically, you're, you're taking on less risk than when you're shorting something else because if you're shorting a stock, there's there's always the possibility that that stock moves against you and you get short squeezed and end up you know losing a ton of money. Whereas if you go out and short a senior share stablecoin, you're you know you're purchasing at it at a dollar and then shorting it. It's it's unlikely that it ever moves against you in the sense that you're that it goes above one dollar because as soon as it does, the system is actually designed to then begin printing printing more stablecoins and moving the price back towards the dollar. So really the the only risk in theory that you're taking on is the cost, uh, the, the, 
the borrowing cost for taking out the short. Um, and I, I used to think that was kind of an Achilles heel there because I realized it was sort of an asymmetric upside for investors and they, they would always be highly incentivized to attack it because it's a, um, sort of a, a low risk, low cost attack. But then I realized that given that, you know, uh, you, you start shorting it at a dollar, the amount of slippage that you take on as you, um, as you begin selling off and, and trying to short it may end up being that, that your, um, you know, your average cost when you're, when you're selling into it is actually lower than a dollar. Um, and thus you are taking on some risk that it may move against you, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that this attack theoretically, I, I still think it's possible, but it's not quite as easy as, as I used to think it was. Right. And the other thing that makes this attack, the, the, the sort of some defense against this attack as well is, it's it's a it's a degree of security through obscurity where you don't actually know you know let's say ten ten years from now when there are liquid enough markets or however long it takes um, that this attack becomes feasible um, you don't actually know how well capitalized the insiders are who are uh, either going to uh, uh, you know band together or decide in some way to, to 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 defend this peg and you can also imagine actually that the defense of a peg like this could also be coordinated by a smart contract. Uh, and that's a really interesting idea if you imagine that in the future there's going to be a, um, you know, if, if these markets in fact uh, occur on chain or some portion of them can be orchestrated on chain, you can imagine what, you know, one of the reasons why it's so hard to defend against that attack is that no individual party, unless you're a very, very massive whale, is going to be that incentivized to start trying to counteract uh, the short sell, right, and, and try to buy up all the supply that's, that's flooding the market. But if you can, if you can, if you can rally sort of the troops, so to speak, using a, a very, uh, using a coordination mechanism like a smart contract that says, look, if, if we see this kind of attack happening, will you pledge your coins in order to do this so that we can kind of band together and solve this sort of collective action problem? That could actually be a really interesting way to defend against this kind of attack where normally, you know, there's only one party defending the coin, right? So in the case of, uh, the Bank of England, only the Bank of England was defending the coin and Soros had a pretty good estimate of exactly how much the Bank of England was going to employ in defending in defending that peg, whereas in in the future of, of basis or any other uh, non collateralized stablecoin, it might be very hard to know exactly how deep is the the pockets of the person defending the coin. And if you can uh, uh, rally multiple people uh, or, or multiple large parties, uh, it might actually be more defensible than it has traditionally been to defend against these kind of attacks. I mean, all of this is very theoretical, and it's probably all very far away because. You know, it, to be honest, if, if Basecoin, uh, or sorry, if Basis is successful over the course of, you know, let's say five to 10 years, that's already amazing. You know, if, if it breaks 10 years from now, I will consider that to be a, a an amazing success. But, uh, if it, if it breaks long before that, then, you know, maybe not so much. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting that you mentioned having people coordinate with a smart contract to sort of automatically defend the peg. One question that raises is then to, because the smart contract is auditable on chain, does that give the attackers a sense of exactly what, uh, like how much is being put forth to defend and how much the cost is going to attack them? And then the other thing is that that kind of gets into interesting territory because in some senses, it, it mimics a collateralized stablecoin in the sense that people are sort of putting putting value on chain to defend against this attack. That, that's an interesting point. So it's it's collateralized, but not with fiat or, or crypto. Really, it's collateralized with this non-collateralized coin. So I, it's, it's sort of an interesting it's an interesting hybrid there. But I I would, I would agree with you. I think you know if you wanted to make this in such a way that you obfuscated the amount, you know there are a lot of zero knowledge proof type ways or, you know, uh, uh, secure multi-party computation types of stuff you could do if you really wanted to hide the state of the smart contract to not prove exactly how much was pledged to defend the coin. 
I mean, I, I, I don't know. All this is in the realm of sci-fi, to be clear, because it's unclear. One, would people want to do that? Because potentially it would mean that, okay, I, I thought I was going to be able to trade these coins, but today the coin, you know, like, basis is getting attacked. And so, you know, do I really want to put up these coins? You know, it's it's unclear how many people would even opt into something like this. Um, and, of course, you know, who decides when the coin is being attacked and therefore it's time to start forcing people to buy up a bunch of the coin in the open market. There would be a lot of issues with actually making something like this work. But it's at least uh, plausible in practice that you could that you could use a smart contract to solve some of that coordination problem. Yeah, definitely. Do you think that people will have the same sort of trust in a senior share style stablecoin that they might in a collateral backed stable in a crypto collateralized stablecoin to actually use as a store of value? Because one thing that you mentioned that was interesting was that you know basis could a basis or, or any other coin that's designed with the same primitives could sort of maintain a peg for a number of years and then you know fail for for some other reason and you know that's that's very possible. But it all sort of revolves around people agreeing on, on what the value is. Whereas at least with a crypto collateralized stable coin, you always have a very exact sense of, of what the value is and then therefore what the price floor is based on the uh, value of what's being held in the collateral. And my guess is that if people are going to be using, uh, I could see something like basis being like if it, if it works and manages to maintain a relatively tight peg being used for trading and things like that. But if people want to use um, stable coins in order to actually store wealth, my gut instinct is that they'd end up going with a crypto collateralized model. Do you agree or disagree? So I'm actually um, – so in general, I feel like the, the core of this question is um, what are people going to think of these different models? And my ultimate answer to that is I think they're not going to think about these different models. I don't think they're going to understand the difference between a tether and a basis and a die and a true USD and a whatever. I think they're going to use whatever's there and whatever happens to be used by whatever exchange they're using or whatever, you know, whatever coin is being accepted on the thing they want to buy stuff from. I think most people, I mean, the reality is, you know, a, a lot of the sound money folks will beat the drum of, hey, you know, uh, fiat currencies are total bullshit. And, you know, they're, they've been inflated uh, in, in this tyrannical way. The reality is most people don't really care. They see that USD is stable. It's a good currency. Everyone uses it. Great. I'll use it too. My sense is that most of these questions about you know, should it be Tether? Should it be Maker? Should it be TrueUSD? They're, they're one, they're, they're very ideologically driven and the ideologies primarily matter to people like us. They don't matter to people who are just trying to day trade or people who are uh, trying to buy, you know, CryptoKitties or whatever. Um, <laughs> I was going to say coffee, but I think CryptoKitties is probably a better uh, example. Um, you know, ultimately, I, I suspect that the stablecoin that's going to win is going to be the stablecoin that it becomes most widely used and is the most scalable. And right now, that stablecoin is clearly Tether. I mean, the market has sort of shown us that Tether is the most scalable stablecoin in the sense that there's the most of it. It's worked for as long as this existed. Um, and, and to be clear, you know, Tether is a dumpster fire. Like many, many, many people have, think that Tether is a total scam. They have the worst press out of almost any cryptocurrency imaginable. And they're still standing and they're still the most used stablecoin anywhere by, by an order of magnitude. You know, there's some there's some message there, and the message is that uh, people don't really care. Now, w once you get to a certain caliber of person, such that you know they're they're thinking about how to store you know twenty million dollars of wealth, then okay, maybe they're going to really care about whether they're storing it in in Tether or in TrueUSD or in in Maker. But I, I suspect that you know, provided that you're a stablecoin that has at least some significant track record, and you're not just a total mess like Tether, 
I don't think that ultimately people are going to make very fine-grained distinctions between one model or another. I think for the most part, if there is a stablecoin that you that you ideolo- you choose for ideological reasons or for basically black swan prevention, and so you know a lot of people would say, look, I, I'm never going to use something like Basis because in a black swan event it could break, which is completely true. The reality is, you know, the whole the whole point of the, the book, the Black Swan by uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, was that people don't give a shit about black swans, right? They should, and they don't. So. Uh, that is to say, I think you will see the exact same pattern in the adoption of stablecoins. Ultimately, the stablecoin that most likely wins is going to be the one that ends up getting adopted by uh, exchanges, by uh, products that end up using them, by you know basically having uh, liquidity and and just a wide issuance. And uh, whatever stablecoin that is, is most likely going to be the one that ends up winning the day. And people care ultimately more about liquidity than they care about ideology. What role do you think the Lindy effect plays here? And like, what advantage do you think, um, DAI has over competitors just by virtue of the fact that, you know, by the time any of these major competitors debut, DAI could have, you know, a year's worth of stability history? I, I think that matters a lot. I think, you know, there's, the, I mean, one of, one of, uh, so I love DAI. I think DAI is one of the most awesome projects on Ethereum, but I think it's got, a, a lot of issues, primarily stemming from its complexity. DAI is extremely complex, and it's very hard to tell people a story of what the hell DAI is. And I think that's actually quite a problem. Um, it's actually, it's, it's, I found for whatever reason, a lot more people understand basis or even want to understand basis than want to understand DAI. And I, my suspicion is that that's going to be a problem for them, like really scaling to lots and lots of uh, adoption. And of course, the fact that it's the most capital inefficient stablecoin. So it's very hard for DAI to expand to meet the demand of, let's say, you know, uh, clearly there's at least $2 billion worth of demand for stablecoins because Tether has more than $2 billion of issuance. For DAI to expand to that size would require an enormous amount of demand uh, for, or basically uh, willingness to lock up Ether for a long period of time, which essentially serves as a kind of, uh, essentially demand for people to go long. And uh, it's, it's, pretty clear that there's not sufficient demand right now for that to take place, for there to be, you know, billions of dollars worth of ETH just locked up in uh, CDPs, which are basically the way that you lock up money for expanding the supply of DAI. So I think that's a pretty big problem for DAI. I don't know how they're going to resolve that. I mean, they've talked about moving to a multi-collateral model, but there are a lot of difficulties with multi-collateral, like, you know, in a multi-collateral model, the idea is that instead of just collateralizing the coin with DAI, or sorry, instead of collateralizing DAI with Ether, which is you know obviously the most stable coin on Ethereum today, you could instead collateralize it with multiple different assets. And you could say, you know, instead, okay, so Ether is pretty volatile, like obviously it's dropped a lot this year, but you know, maybe instead we want to throw some gold tokens in there. And then we also want to, you know, throw in some, you know, uh, tokenized securities in there. And we'll throw in just a bunch of stuff, just kind of make it a big, relatively diversified portfolio of assets. And that's going to be the collateral for this, uh, for this new, new and improved version of DAI. And that's a, that's a really beautiful idea. Problem with it though, is that then in order for that to work, you need a bunch of these other random tokens, which are also need to be locked up and held inside of a CDP. And you need to have uh, sufficient demand for all of those things in the right composition. So like 30% of it needs to be the gold token, 20% needs to be the whatever, blah, 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 equity token. And is that going to work? Is that going to scale? How are you going to govern that? That's really complicated. Whereas on the other hand, something like TrueUSD or Basis, uh, they're, in reality, they're much simpler. And if anything, I'd say that's the, that's the principal virtue of Tether or TrueUSD is that they are just the dumb, simplest thing you could possibly do. 
And I think there's a beauty to that. I think it goes really underappreciated how fucking simple Tether and TrueUSD are, which is you just, these are just digital dollars. And you go spend them, and then when you want them back, we'll just give you the dollars, right? That is so great, and I suspect there's a reason why they are the largest uh, uh, stablecoins right now, is because it makes sense, people get it, they haven't really screwed up. I mean, Tether is screwed up in a number of ways, but um, in in the in the you know most relevant ways, like it's just such a simple idea, and for now it works. Now I think once you get a the failure of your first centralized stablecoin, I think that's going to give a lot of people sort of Mt. Gox style jitters about ever using a centralized stablecoin again. Uh, but until that happens, my suspicion is that it's, centralized stablecoins are going to win the day until there is uh, an event like that that drives everyone running away. Yeah, I think you brought up a really interesting point, not just about Tether and TrueUSD, because that's that's a dead simple and it's it's really easy to explain to people. It's just, you know, there's there's dollars that are held in the bank account and there's tokens that are issued that represent them. But I think another thing here is that like with the senior shares model, it's meant to be algorithmic. Whereas we talked about how makers are gonna have trouble scaling, but I think people talk a lot about how you'd need to lock up a ton of collateral and that's going to put sort of scalability limits on it. But another thing is like the social scalability aspect because maker is this governed system. You know, they call themselves a DAO and it's governed by these token holders, but you have things like in multi-collateral die, you need a group of token holders who are deciding, you know, what are the tokens that are allowed as collateral? You know, what is the debt ceiling for each of those, uh, for each of those collateral types? How, how many stable claims can be issued against them? What is the liquidation, uh, ratio or sort of the, you know, how much of each of those has to be locked up? in order to issue stable coins um, and all of these different questions that require this sort of ongoing activist shareholder governance. And that part of the system actually scales or does not scale well. Whereas sort of in theory, these um, senior shares models, they're just an algorithmic central bank. So you can have everything sort of pre-programmed into the system. And because you have that, plus the fact that they don't require collateral to be locked up, there's really no limit on on how how big those things can go. Another thing, and I've heard people talk about this, is this idea that stable coins will get eaten from the uh, from the bottom up and from the top down. And the idea behind that is that from the top down, um, if you sort of buy the vision of of Bitcoin as as sound money, you know. People sort of contend that Bitcoin will, will first be a store of value. And as it grows in value and eventually becomes a bigger and bigger part of the financial system, um, eventually it will, it will stabilize and, um, people will start using it more of a, as a medium of exchange. And then finally, in the long run, it could, it could really become a unit of account and, and sort of replace, uh, or sort of become a, a full fledged money system. And then from the bottom up is this idea that, you know, governments may end up eventually issuing fiat currencies on chain. And we've seen sort of hints of that with a, with a few governments um, that have sort of floated ideas around that. We haven't seen any government actually enact it, but it could certainly be an interesting um, sort of evolution of, of fiat currency. And one of the ideas behind that is that having an alternative sound money like Bitcoin may actually force central banks around the world to do a better job of governing their currencies. And certainly putting it on chain could add a level, level of sort of auditability and accountability there. And if you take really either or of those two things, but especially if you take them together, it ultimately shrinks the the uh, the addressable market for decentralized stable coins. What do you think about that? So that, that's a very interesting question of uh, whether, you know, these two potential alternatives that could come down the road, one being the mature version of Bitcoin, which, you know, to be clear, 
Bitcoin right now is is not even in the ballpark of being a, a stable currency for obvious reasons. And government issued fiat, which so far the only government issued fiat we've really seen is the Petro, uh, which is you know kind of also similarly laughable. But in the future, one can one can well imagine that first of all, Bitcoin could eventually you know once it reaches some market maturity and the inflation rate uh, drops further and further, there are more halvings. Then maybe Bitcoin becomes a sound money type thing, and maybe it supplants. Uh, the demand for stable coins. So I, first of all, I think this is very unlikely. Um, a few reasons why I think it's unlikely. So first is that, you know, in the limit, Bitcoin becomes a deflationary currency. And it becomes a deflationary currency because when it stops issuing through inflation, new uh, coins in the block reward, the only way that the Bitcoin supply changes is downward when people lose coins. And we know that people lose coins. They lose coins very regularly because either they get hacked or, you know, their hardware gets damaged or something else. And the coins are just lost forever. And in all of those cases, that is effectively the same as as destroying some of the supply of Bitcoin. So over time, the supply of Bitcoin is getting smaller and smaller. And we know for a lot of reasons that deflationary assets tend not to be used as currencies. Um, they're, you know, if you've heard of a deflationary spiral, almost all uh, currencies that are used in the real world tend to be inflationary. Now, even putting that aside, it, it also happens to be the case that we use assets like the U.S. dollar or other assets or other, other, other currencies that tend to be far more stable than most commodities. Um, in the limit, if Bitcoin becomes very, very successful as a sort of digital gold, um, it's going to look like a commodity, right? It's, it's not going to, we, like, we shouldn't expect just by virtue of the fact that, well, it's Bitcoin and we said it's digital gold, that it's going to be as stable as the US dollar. There's no reason in principle to believe that that will be true. It might well be very, very stable, but still not as stable as the US dollar and nowhere near as liquid and not accepted in the same places and so on. So, if if Bitcoin succeeds in doing that, then you know that's that's pretty crazy. That's like a you know hitting a hole in one twice in a row. Most likely, Bitcoin will be relatively stable, but it won't be as stable as a stablecoin because the whole you know the job of a stablecoin is just to be stable. Being stable is not Bitcoin's only job. So we should be surprised if Bitcoin happens to be more stable than literally a thing that was invented purely to be stable. The the second counterpart would be government issued fiat, and here I am in total agreement that I think a, a sufficiently you know, suitable form of government issued fiat could absolutely display stable coins. I think it's pretty unlikely for a few reasons, though. So the first thing is that it's very, very unlikely that the US government is going to issue a stable coin, uh, or sorry, issue uh, sort of on chain fiat um, anytime soon. You know, the US government is extremely risk averse, it has the most to lose from participating in the issuance of, of digital currencies, most likely many other much more uh, sort of centralized and authoritative governments are going to start first in issuing digital currencies. And especially given that the US government has, you know, it essentially is is running the reserve currency of the world. It has the most infrastructure that would need to be updated and be able to pre be prepared to interrupt with, with uh, blockchains. My guess would be that, you know, the US dollar would be one of the last to ever become on-chain fiat if on-chain fiat did in fact become a thing. So most likely, the, the governments that were to issue uh, on-chain fiat first would not be the most interesting currencies to hold. You'd still want something that was pegged to the U.S. dollar because that would still be the reserve currency of the world uh, in uh, sort of you know in practice. And the second aspect of it is that if those uh, let, let's say the U.S. government does decide, you know what, USD is still reserve currency of the world. We're going to issue some on-chain fiat. However, that on-chain fiat is, for example, you know tied to your identity in the real world, and there are restrictions on where you can send it, and it automatically applies taxes and tariffs and blah 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 blah. My guess is going to be that that version of the digital US dollar is not going to have the properties that people wanted out of, you know, the, the, uh, the, the USD pegged 
stable coins that they originally invented in being that they're censorship resistant, they're borderless, they can be transferred anywhere in the world. Uh, there's no you know, central oversight over where those things go and no restrictions on how you can use them. My guess is they're going, there's going to be some fairly significant demand for the you know, pegged US dollar that can be spent in an international marketplace without any restrictions. Most likely, though, if the US government or a similarly powerful government does issue a stable on-chain fiat, though, it's probably going to eat the, the majority of the volume running through stable coins. But almost certainly, they will not wipe out all of it because there will be, I would guess, uh, a lot of market demand that's not satisfied by a sort of government-backed and most likely government-monitored uh, fiat, fiat coin. So that would be my take. But, it, but in the end, all of these things are so far away that you know, Bitcoin becoming stable or governments issuing serious uh, on-chain fiat – I, I think that is all, you know, many, many years away, if not a decade or more. Zooming out a little bit, Hasib, have you talked about this podcast, like, where are you most excited? Have you invested as MetaStable invested in stable coins? And if not, what would need to be true for you to do so? Yeah, yeah. So we, ha- we have invested in Basis. We were one of the early investors there, and I'm uh, good friends with the, the founders at Basis. And I think they're super fascinating project, and we're they were one of the early innovators in the senior chairs space. And, you know, a lot of these other protocols that have come up really came out when they saw the success of, of basis very early on. Uh, the, the, I mean, I, I'm really excited by die. I'm really curious to see how they uh, evolve the protocol as it keeps growing. I mean, you know, and, and like I mentioned uh, in an earlier answer, like I'm also very fascinated by uh, the fiat collateralized stable coins. Cause I suspect they are going to be probably for the next few years or the next couple of years, at least the, the predominant place where a lot of this value is exchanged until there is some kind of event that makes the market lose confidence in these fiat collateralized coins. So I, I find the space super interesting. At the same time, I do have the side of me that, you know, is is kind of where Miles claimed to be, which is that, you know, there's <laughs> there, there's always a healthy skepticism that I approach each of these projects, right? Like the your your prior should always be that most things don't work, right? The, the set of things that work and continue working and don't break is really small. Most things break at some point and then they get replaced by something else. So my guess is going to be that probably everything in the current generation of, of uh, these stable coins is probably going to break and be replaced by something better at some point. I would, I would be absolutely enthralled to see one of these projects actually last a decade. And if they do, if any of them do, I'll consider it to be a resounding success. But that's, I mean, I think that's really the only attitude you can have about these things is that it's so early. And you have to remember that all of these things are massive experiments, even the crypto collateralized or fiat collateralized one, especially when it comes to the regulatory side. These are these are all in flux. None of them you should assume are going to succeed in the long run until proven otherwise. We mentioned the three main categories of the crypto collateralized, the fiat collateralized, and the algorithmic stable coins. Have you actually seen any projects that you would consider that you would say don't fall into one of those three categories? I, I, I kind of feel like you can sort of shoehorn each of them into them in some way or another. I do agree that there have been more hybrids. I'm not I'm not in love with with many of the hybrids just because they introduce more complexity. Generally speaking, and I think this is somewhat underappreciated in a lot of crypto, the simpler the better, almost always. Like there's such there there's such an underappreciation for the value of simplicity. Like the likelihood that a project gets hacked, a likelihood that somebody missed something about the economic analysis, the likelihood that something is just, you know, implemented poorly, or that it turns out that some element just turns out not to be scalable because there, you know, there are 20 different pulleys holding this thing together and one of them just costs a bunch of money or doesn't happen very frequently or whatever. All of those probabilities just go way, way up the more complicated a protocol gets. 
So I actually am very partial to the simplest version of every protocol in every vertical, essentially. So for stablecoins to really like mimic digital fiat cash, I, I think there's, there's two additional properties that we haven't seen yet. One of which is, is privacy and the other of which is scalability and not from the perspective of the protocol being able to grow, but actually just the scalability of the underlying platform that it's built upon in terms of like throughput transactions per second, et cetera. Given that most of these, um, stablecoin projects are built on top of a smart contract protocol like Ethereum that, you know, not only has its own scaling issues, but also isn't inherently private. Do you think that places any sort of inherent limitation on them? Do you think that people will even care about privacy when using stablecoins in the future? Or is that just something that uh, you think people will kind of give up? That's a that's a pretty deep question. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it depends a lot on... I mean, that, that that's a sort of a question that applies to almost all of these cryptocurrencies aside from the the, the um, explicit privacy coins like Monero and Zcash and Grin and so on. For for right now, I can say that I you know I think the demand for privacy is actually pretty low. Like the reality is, most people are not really using crypto for anything that mission critical other than trading or speculation. And so, given that, I think right now the demand for privacy is is really not there. In the future, there are a lot of proposals for how to implement private smart contracts, and private smart contracts could enable you know private ownership and transfer of something like a tether or a basis or whatever on ethereum but my guess is going to be that you know the, these problems of privacy and scalability are just massively orthogonal to stablecoins because ultimately once those problems get figured out all of these stablecoins can be re-implemented on any other platform whether it be ethereum whether it be something else with with basically no loss of correctness right like tether already is implemented on multiple platforms. It has some issuance on Omni, which is a Bitcoin sidechain, and has some issuance on uh, on Ethereum as ERC20 tokens. And pretty much all of these stablecoins could essentially do the same thing, provided that you have some way to do um, you know tokenized interoperability between between blockchains, which I imagine is probably going to be solved by the time that we're actually really dealing with uh, serious contenders for scalability solutions. Is there anything interesting to say about how institutional investors might approach stablecoins? That is a very good question. I, I don't know that I know how institutional investors would approach stablecoins. So, I mean, living in, living in the US, I don't have enough insight into how institutions outside the US are, are, are going to view stablecoins. I mean, I think it's it's like, generally speaking, obviously it depends on the country, but in many countries, being an institution gives you much easier access to capital markets. And so it's easier for you to have you know exposure to the right kind of you know, sort of diversified basket of, of assets and currencies if you want. But I, you know, to be honest, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't think it's a question that really is at the top of mind for most of these coins right now. Most of these coins right now are competing for traders, competing for, for being the, the reserve currencies of different exchanges and ultimately for being used in smart contracts and other things like that. My guess is going to be that, you know, institutions are not really where the demand for stable coins are, are going to manifest anytime soon. Maybe closing off here a little bit, what is your sort of a request for projects in terms of like, where do you want to see engineers and entrepreneurs innovate in the realm of stablecoins? I would say, you know, anyone who's who's coming up with an approach that's not one of the three that we've identified before, um, I'd certainly be interested in hearing about it because I would imagine that given the fact that, you know, as we mentioned, senior shares wasn't even sort of written up into an implementation until last year. I think there's probably room to innovate, but 
beyond just those three categories. I also think that, you know, stable coins built on other platforms might, you know, are an interesting thing. Um, almost everyone that I know of is built to, on top of Ethereum right now, aside from a fiat collateralized uh, stable coin that IBM is doing with um, Stellar that's built on top, top of the Stellar blockchain. But as we have other platforms like um, EOS and Definity, um, you know, Hashgraph, some of these other smart contract platforms that come online. And as those smart contract platforms develop DAP ecosystems, um, you're going to want stable coins on those platforms as well. So uh, I think that's something to look out for. Yeah, I'd say, you know, I've, I, I, I've become more and more cynical over time as I've seen more and more of these uh, stable coin pitches, especially as it's kind of reached a fever pitch in the last six months. I, you know what I would really love to see is a stable coin where it's not obvious how people get rich off it. Uh, I, I, I feel like the, it's kind of, it's sort of the, I mean, maybe it's just a function of, you know, this is how capitalism works, so this is not surprising, but I would really love to say, and, 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 you know, clearly this is somewhat at odds with my identity as an investor, but, you know, it, it, it would be really surprising if the only good designs for stable coins were ones where someone was able to get rich off of it. It seems like there should be some designs for stable coins where, you know, all of that extra value actually, you know, cycles back into, keeping the system stable or something, you know, it, it just seems implausible to me that there's no such system that would totally work and, and not become a world scale currency alongside each of these where somehow all the value is just, you know, kept in the system and not, accrue, you know, doesn't, doesn't accrue to early adopters. I don't know if that exists. I just think it's an interesting thought experiment and I'd love to see if somebody has uh, good ideas about how that might happen. But then why would anyone build it if you can't become a trillionaire? I know. I know that's the <laughs> Part, you know, this, the Satoshi uh, instinct in you. I know. Um, if you if you feel that, come calling. Yeah, totally. we'd be happy to find out of the goodness of our hearts. Awesome, guys! This has been a fantastic episode. Thank you both so much for for coming on. Thanks for having us. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check out more at www.villageglobal.vc. We'd love to learn more about what you're up to.